Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now a word from our sponsors. All right. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Um, I met Elaine on field school, and I'm really thankful that I did. And she's been doing some really cool research for her thesis, so I really wanted to have her on the podcast. Uh, so welcome. Hi. It's really um, nice to, have to be here. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. What I've been doing for my research, my thesis, has been so much fun that I just and wanting to tell everybody about it yeah well this will be the best way you're like hey you want to know about my thesis go listen to this podcast episode you can get the whole you can get the whole spiel oh yeah definitely and I'm like I'm TAing for some classes and I'm like mm. by the way I just came back for five months in Oaxaca Mexico yeah yes mm. definitely very exciting oh for sure yeah um well I guess a good first question what class are you TAing for so I'm TAing for the upper division biological anthropology courses. So I help in the lab section portion. So I run through the labs with the students and I just kind of help the professors. Nice. You did both your undergrad and now your master's at San Diego State University. Um, how did you even get started into being interested in anthropology and ultimately, <clears throat> um, you know, developing a real love and fascination for it? Well, that's part of the thing was I fell in love with anthropology while I was in high school. So my sister, my older sister, she's an archaeologist and she was studying anthropology at our local community college. And she was like, hey, there's this lecturer. I would think you're going to love it. So you're coming with me. She just dragged me and I was like, do I have to go to this college? And like, this is so weird. Like, I'm not even going to go here because I thought I was going to go to SCCU as a four year, but I ended up actually going to that same community college. And just uh, the, the lecturer was Madeline Hanks. She was doing forensic anthropology at the border. And it just, I loved it. I loved every kind of aspect of it, of just being able to identify human remains. But just the border work is what got, got me. And so from there, I went to community college in anthropology. Um, with a kind of like a focus in forensics, but also always really interested in Mesoamerican archaeology, because that was my main professor at my community. And then when I got to SDCU, that's when I uh, took a class with Dr. Ariane Mates, and she has a whole forensic anthropology course. And it was just like, yes, that's what I want to do. It's what I want to do. And so I would do things. I would go and talk to her after class. I even took her osteology course um, just so I can get a, get close and talk with her and then she kind of mentioned that she doesn't do forensic anymore she doesn't do contemporary as much mm -hmm. she does more archaeological work and I was like that's even more cool because now she's doing bioarchaeology in Mesoamerica mm -hmm. and I was always kind of it was kind of like this 
best of the both worlds of what I've always been interested but didn't know how to mix them yeah so I was like I don't even I don't care like I'm gonna apply to this program I'd still apply to other master's programs because I was encouraged to just in case you never know it's good to have backups but SUC was always my first choice and so that's why I went to the master's program there awesome uh, what are some of your favorite things about SDSU or just the San Diego area in general? I think a lot of our listeners have probably never been to San Diego. <laughs> well, as a born and raised San Diegan, I just the weather's kind of like this always kind of perfect mix. There's a good amount of rain, but for only for like maybe two months, three months. Um, it's always really sunny. You can get to the beach in like less than 15 minutes. But you also have the mountains, we have the sand dunes, sometimes in the winter we'll have snow. So it's always like this great mix of you can get to any kind of environment if you have a car. I'm from California and I did not know it snows in San Diego. Yeah, so like um, you can drive about like 30, 40 minutes and the closest one would be like Julian, the Julian Mountains. But you have to go like almost immediately after it rains for like Mm. a good week. Because then there's actual snow on top. Mm, well, it quickly gonna... melts. Yeah. They quickly melt. So, but you you can catch it. It's really yeah. fun. That's awesome. Um, so who has been your mentor, your main advisor? Obviously, I know I, as a current grad student, there are definitely a lot of people that contribute to the mentoring advising relationship. Uh, but do you have like a main mentor at SDSU? Yeah. So my men, my main mentor is Dr. Ariane Mace. Awesome. That's really exciting. Um, I'm really, I I feel like there's actually a benefit to going to the same uh, school for uh, grad that under, you do undergrad. Uh, You know, for example, I just moved 3000 miles across the country and it's quite, quite an adjustment. Grad school in and of itself is already an adjustment. So I think it, it probably gives you kind of a bit of a a leg up and, you know, you feel secure. Um, And it sounds like you got a GTA ship, which is lovely. Yeah, so what's really great is that because I went in as an undergrad to grad student, I already knew most of the faculty. Mm-hmm. So I, some of them even wrote my letter of recommendations to get me into the master's program because they saw that I put in the effort and then I would take the steps, even though sometimes it can be a bit difficult for me or they knew personal issues that they're like, oh, Elaine's doing the best she can right now. Mm-hmm. So just having that kind of, spray across the faculty who knows you yeah really helps and I think too it helps as a graduate student because then they're like yeah I'll be your your second yeah I'll be your third mm-hmm. For sure. as long as it pertains to your thesis though yeah um is there any advice you would give undergrads that are kind of still trying to find their their niche is there anything that helped you or anything you maybe wish you would have done differently Um, something I definitely think is a good thing to do is don't be afraid to take courses if it's not your sub-discipline focus, because you never know who can actually help you along the way, Mm -hmm. because different professors have different experiences with grant writing, with, um, getting scholarships, or they are more involved in local versus international projects. And then something that I wish I did a little bit more was take classes outside of the department. 
So I did take like women's studies and I took Chicano studies, but I wish I had done more like um, geography, maybe geology, because mm-hmm. I feel like if you're doing more of an arc, uh, archaeology uh, focus, sometimes those little things can get you into geoarchaeology mm-hmm. or they can get you into GIS archaeology, yeah. which is super huge right now. Um, For sure. So I would definitely kind of play with those things and see what other little niches are there in archaeology or uh, different aspects of anthropology and cultural. There's ethnography. It, in bio, you have primatology, paleoanthropology. Mm-hmm. Like there's all these tiny little things. You can do evolutionary and that can go in a lot of different ways also. So I think if you're taking courses outside of the department, can give you an upper hand of a better understanding or even just the scientific understanding that quotes, you know, that can actually help you in anthropology. Because sometimes we don't go over exactly what makes up a DNA or what are the biological um, aspects that go into evolution. We met in Menorca, Spain um, on a field project. I just have, I have fond memories of all of the really fun extra things that we did. You know, we went on a boat trip around the island. I think our group was, was really close knit and uh, really thankful for everybody, um, including like Megan, uh, Lexi, um, I'm referring to names, Toby. Everyone was super, super wonderful for all the other people's names that I didn't just mention. Please don't feel offended. I just, I'm going off the cuff right now. And I, (laughs) names are already hard enough for me. What are some of the things that you kind of took from your first field experience into your longer, real intensive data collection in Oaxaca, which we'll get to in a minute? Well, while we were in Spain, we got to work with some burials and I felt like it kind of prepared me to go to Mexico because we had this crazy like Roman cement that we had to dig through around the bones that was incredibly hard that like we're going at it with all these wooden sticks and we're like we're never gonna get anywhere with this yeah but because I could uh, that preparation of dealing with hard sediment uh, and then using different types of tools uh, I felt really kind of set me up for Oaxaca because the sediment that we worked with for the burials varied so much Mm -hmm. Sometimes we had burials that were only 10 centimeters above surface level. Wow. So the sediment is like 2000 years old, but I have to like be spraying it with water constantly because it's just so hard. And everyone was like, oh, you're going to have a really hard time with sediment. And I was like, this is the same sediment I dealt with in Spain. Yeah. This is nothing. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this isn't, this isn't that hard. Trust me. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like really surprised that I had already worked with hard sediment. So I yeah. felt I'm really grateful for Spain to actually help me with that. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of getting used to outlining burials because you need to outline the burials before you, so you can take pictures so you can draw it. Mm-hmm. So I felt that really helped. And I think too, we also worked with the plumb bobs in Spain yeah. and that, and that's all I was doing in, in Oaxaca. Every time I had to draw something, I had to use a plumb bob. So having that experience and be like, oh, I already know what that is. Mm-hmm. Because you don't talk about what a plumb bob is in any of your seminar or seminar courses, mm-hmm. your undergrad courses, not even in the 100s. Like, I feel like no one goes over what a plumb bob was, but Spain 
uh, yeah. when we went to Spain, it was introduced to me and I was like, oh, I know what it is. I can yeah, use it. <laughs> for sure. And I think that even goes to say like having just an introduction to it can really help down the road. Like you don't need to be an expert after your first field school. Don't, you know, don't take it the wrong way. Like just the idea that you've seen it before you generally understand how it works. You understand the principles that go along with it. I suppose we should maybe define kind of what a plumb bob is. It is like a heavy weight on a string that you hang from above to get an accurate point of where the bone is is that a decent explanation I would say so too and that each heavy weight can vary some will have like a little kind of like have a point at the end so it Mm -hmm. could be even more precise and others they're just all different types of shapes and they vary depends on the handler as well how long the string how thick the string they want it to be Mm -hmm. yeah um well I'm really I am glad to hear that it uh that it that it was helpful (laughs) moving forward um so now you know it comes to your thesis time you're in your first semester like I am now everyone starts going hmm what questions are you gonna ask where are you gonna get your data where are you gonna where are you gonna work and uh what kind of started falling into place was it well for me I was pretty fortunate that my advisor already had an NSF grant going. This project was already in the works for a couple years now. And just based off timing for me, they're like, you're the student that's going. Love it. I was working on a National Science Foundation project directed by Dr. Arthur Joyce. So it was, that was actually the first time one of, uh, one, a bioarchaeology student was going to go for the whole field season. Wow. So I got, that was the first time it was the first time I considered to be the full bioarchaeologist on the project. That's really exciting. Uh, how, and I can rephrase this question if, if you don't like how it comes out, but how does it feel to get to work in a country that you have heritage in? And I don't know if both family, both parents, but you know, family members that are from Mexico. Well, that's the thing is that in Mexico, there are, over 60 tribes, different um, descendants that lived throughout Mesoamerica, and especially in Mexico. So even though my parents are from Mexico, we're considered the North. So it wasn't exactly my descendants, but just being able to be Mexican American and to get to work in Mexico was like a privilege to me. Mm -hmm. I was over the over the moon for it because it was like if anyone can be able to work with this data like I'm glad that it's me mm-hmm. because not only am I going to be recognizing the indigenous um like importance that all this data is going to come out of that I can work with uh the community that's around the area but still be able to communicate with them and be like why exactly we're doing here So being in the field, like I'm talking in Spanish all the time, Mm -hmm. or at least I tried to. Sometimes there's days it was a bit too much. I would just pretend I didn't know anything, but, (laughs) but at least because I spoke Spanish, the workers felt comfortable enough to talk with me and ask me, well, what is that meaning? Like, Mm -hmm. especially with the burials, they always had so many questions about the burials about how do you know if it's a a female or male? How do you know how old they are? And they would get really excited and they would actually sometimes prefer to work with me 
than with the actual archaeologists because they'd be like, oh, Elaine's, Elaine's looking at all these bones. I want to ask her these questions. Mm-hmm. And they would get really kind of like the sense of like, ooh, I'm, I'm doing so good because they found teeth or they found some hand bones and they're like, oh my gosh. They get so excited that it, it was always really fun to see it. So then just being a Mex- Mexican-American and working in Mexico was absolutely the best thing I think that could happen to me for my thesis. And I couldn't be more proud to be Mexican, honestly. Yeah, that's really exciting. I, I knew from the second I saw you posting about where you were getting to do your field work that it would be, you know, an enriching experience like that. And I think you got uh, an example hands on about how important community oriented archaeology is and how beneficial it is to be able to communicate with the people, uh, the community members around you and explain what's going on. I think we need so much more of that in every every step of bio arc, especially because, you know, it is quite literally humans. Um, so yeah that's that's really exciting and and I hope that you know you get to do more of that going forward because it's invaluable yeah it definitely is um like thinking back at it and it's like I would do it again Mm -hmm. if I had the chance and they asked me to go back I'll go I'd go in a heartbeat yeah because I think too is a something that really helped enrich the experience was the fact that because I'm Mexican-American, sometimes I don't feel as connected to my Mexican roots. Mm-hmm. So being able to spend five months living in Mexico was just kind of like allowed me to embrace my culture more than I have been able to, even though I'm in San Diego. Crossing the border is just a 20-minute drive for me. And Mexico's that close that sometimes I don't always feel as connected. Mm-hmm. So getting this experience, I felt, really helped me embrace my roots a lot better. Yeah. And I didn't even mention, uh, Elaine was there for five months, which is like she was saying, that's a full field season. And for a grad student, I would say that's on the, for a master's student, I would say that's on the rarer side. Um, yeah, <laughs> but I think, you know, you oh, gotta yeah. live in a, you gotta live in a village. I don't know, maybe town, city. I, I think it looked more rural to me. Um, and you gotta live really close to the site. Um, tell us a little bit about the site, what kind of the, the overarching research questions were, and as well as the time period. Yeah, so I lived at, it was like more of a rural town, um, some paved roads, some not, but everything's in walking distance, except the site, that's about a 20-minute drive, and that's if we cross the dam, because it, uh, we have to cross the Watermay Dam but because of the rainy season, sometimes we'd have to take the long way, which could take just another 10 to 15. Mm-hmm. But the site was also an even more tinier little pueblo, to be honest. Um, they do have paved roads. They have their own water. They all use wells there. So that's how they they mostly get their water, actually. And it's pretty clean water. Obviously, you don't drink it, but it's they always have a constant supply of water. So the site I was working at was Rio Viejo. Um, it's in the Hamiltepec region. We were focusing on the early post-classic and late classic. That's as far as we would go because in Rio Viejo, there was a collapse right before the late classic. So mm-hmm. in the late classic, Rio Viejo is emerging again. And then the, it collapses again in the early post-classic. 
So our main questions that we're looking at is trying to understand the structure of what's going on in this new uh, development of Rio Viejo and trying to understand um, perhaps archaeological, uh, agricultural impacts. So that's why we were looking at the burial so we can look at population health. And then just trying to see where there was shifts in the political organization. So we could see that there were different levels of houses. So we would see more isolated houses versus in the early post-classic, I believe, we started to see it was more of a communal area. And then uh, what was interesting, too, is actually we had two different operations going on, or, well, technically three operations, but Op B was just kind of really huge. Mm -hmm. So we had Op A and Op B, and I would have to walk back and forth a lot, but we had these huge areas to kind of look at perhaps different types of houses that were being built in the area or trying to look for platforms. And so I'm assuming that uh, the skeletal remains are commingled in these architectural features? Yes. So what is common, well, not exactly common for Oaxacan archaeology, but in Rio Viejo, we have noticed was that uh, their burials are often underneath the houses. So descendants of whoever's living in the house at the time as they die off, they will be buried underneath the house. Got it. So that's how we would find like a platform and then we'd be like, okay, there may or may not be individuals. And then, or if we find individuals, then we we have to reconsider how many platforms there could have been because mm -hmm. they're at different levels. And then oftentimes too, is we would find that the children are buried outside of the house. Mm -hmm. So we only have mainly adults. But this season, we found a little bit, we found more children with um, being inside the house. So we thought that was a bit interesting. Mm -hmm. So Rio Viejo tends to vary a lot in how the burials were done. Yeah, definitely an interesting point to, to research and look further into. And now a word from our sponsors. Oh, I was going to ask what the material of the houses uh, was predominantly. So the houses were made pre predominantly out of organic material. Okay. So we have no actual archaeological evidence of the houses except for the platforms. Mm -hmm. So what would happen is um, they would have them kind of above ground. So they weren't made directly on the ground like how we have houses now they were kind of built on these like little stilts and then we have a platform so this platform is kind of like this burned earth kind of like bahareke material that we could we would find every so often in bits and pieces that's so cool it reminds me of a site in europe that i can't think of uh where uh parents were under the house and children were in a, were in a separate spot uh, just fascinating how, you know, across continents, there can be very similar burial practices. And it just always blows my mind how humans come up with such similar, whether it's architecture style, pottery style, uh, art, 
uh, just across continents when in across time periods. And it's like, you know, it's not the same people, but yet human nature, you know, come up with a lot of really similar things. It's, it's one of the things that honestly just amazes me about anthropology is just how cool humans are and how innovative and adaptive we are. I think it definitely speaks upon how, although we're coming from different cultures, our brains are just all working the same. For sure. We all have these different cultural aspects that we come up on our own, but there are cross continents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you um, ever had an interest in like paleoanth? Yeah, I did actually. That was one of, as I got into bioanth more, I was like, I got really into paleoanth, but it, I had to let it go because I was like, yeah. no, 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 I want to do forensics. <laughs> yeah. I've always loved paleoanthropology. It's one of my yeah. favorites. Uh, the uh, Homo floriensis always gets me about how they're just so unique. That That's just what I was thinking of when we were talking about cross-continent, just like such a unique um, hominid. And gosh, I hope we learn more about, more about, uh, you know, timing. I mean, because they were living concurrently yeah. with Homo sapiens, which is like mind-blowing. Oh, Yeah. I, I did like a whole paper on homo floresiensis because oh. I was that was like my I loved it and so it was like really interesting to just see like the timing but mm-hmm. they're just huge estimates that were like we need to find mm-hmm. more to get a better understanding as to what exactly they were doing yeah for sure um so now that you are you're back home you're you're in the process of writing everything up what is the next six to nine months kind of look like for you? What are, what's your life like right now? Are you primarily just writing up or are you doing lab analysis of the data you collected? So right now I need to finish my courses since I took a whole semester off because I was in the field. I didn't get to finish my required courses. So that's why I'm doing this semester. But my plan is to be writing my proposal, getting my committee, and then start writing my thesis. I'm not exactly going to be doing more data analysis Mm -hmm. because all of the human remains were stored in Oaxaca city. Got it. So my thesis is actually going to be on burial practices. So it's going to be a little bit more of an informative thesis and not exactly data focused. Yeah. So that's my main goal for these six to nine months is reading more on different types of burial practices and then writing up my thesis on the individuals that we found this season and then in previous. Yeah. I want to get your take on something, which I have a feeling I probably know your stance is that I actually like that bioarchaeologists are moving towards leaving human remains in the country from which they were dug up in. Do you agree and kind of feel like it's a a good push in the field? And even though, you know, it does hinder some things like having them back at the labs at home, I feel like I feel like it's it's a good it's a good change. I definitely think so. This has definitely been something that's been happening in Mexico, at least, is that we have to report everything to INA, which mm-hmm. is the Instituto uh, Nacional de Historia y Antropología. Um they run everything, all of the archaeological sites they run. You have to get through them in order to do a project in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I feel that by having the burials stored where they know where they are is uh, a, a good thing because 
allows for people to go back and relook at these collections over time. For sure. My only my only gist though is that oftentimes it's why can't we bury the individuals back into where they were? Mm-hmm. Because I feel that was their last resting place and shouldn't we allow them and their spirit to remain in where they've been for the past 2000 years? Mm-hmm. But then that gets into complications as to, well, people know we were working there. Mm. What if they go back and they try to find something? Mm-hmm. So it gets a bit complicated as to looking at the actual ethics and yeah. which one's just better. Yeah. But it's an important conversation. It's important to even sit here and be like explaining to people who may not know. Because I know even I would say probably up until two years ago, my understanding of how, even if they're not identifiable to a specific indigenous group, how important Mm -hmm. it is to simply in spirit and in our actions and in our ethics, you know, have conversations like is it possible to do reburials or if not keeping them in their country of origin, which in my opinion still does bestow some respect that they are staying in Mexico. You know, obviously everyone's going to have a different opinion on that, Uh, but I think it's a really important conversation to have and uh, questions to ask and to constantly be questioning our practices and constantly being uh, trying to improve, trying to be uh, more ethical. Uh, Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up. It's definitely a double-edged sword. It's just, that's just how ethics works nowadays. It's like, well, would you rather have it in Mexico or in some random lab that's going to get lost for sure in another country? Yeah, or and it's going to sit in a box in a lab for years in America. Exactly. And it's, it really begs the question as to like, who has the resources also to make mm-hmm. sure that these individuals get stored respectfully? Yes. Yeah. Um Yeah, I'm glad we got to touch on that. I think it's important. And I'm really glad that, you know, you've been so invested in, in your project. I mean, obviously being there for five months, but, but not everyone has the same level of uh, commitment to people that they're digging up. And I think it's important that we continue to push ourselves to really remember that these are, these were living people. Um, Oh yeah. It was actually one of the things that sometimes the workers would kind of look at me funny because I would always be so respectful of the burials and I would, I would talk with them. Mm-hmm. Hey, sorry. Or I would just talk to them be like, I wonder what kind of individual you were. Why were you buried here? Or if I can't figure out what position they are. I'm like, come on, man, just give me a hint. Just tell me where your other arm is. Mm-hmm. I'm like, tell me which way you went. Mm-hmm. And that was always the little thing that they'd be like, what are you doing, Elaine? And I'm like, I got to talk to the individual. They're the best person that's going to tell me who they are. And if I just allow them to talk to me, then yeah. I'll, I'll get a, get them out correctly and I won't have to damage them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. you definitely, you have a good career. How do you, let me tell you right now, you've got, you've got a good <laughs> head on your shoulders. All right. So after your thesis, do you have any goals, aspirations, kind of where do you, where do you feel like your life's going to take you? I feel like let's manifest something. Oh, there's just, there's been so much on my mind lately. I've been thinking about doing a PhD program, but at the same time, maybe I need a break. (laughs) I've been, you know, going at it, going at it. High school, community college, did in two years, went to undergrad, two years went to my master's program and it just 
maybe mm-hmm. I need a rest from the academic um, yeah. community because mm-hmm. writing it just takes a whole a huge toll on you. It does. I think that's something sometimes we don't always talk about is the mental health of graduate students. It's like mm-hmm. it's good to take a break. Yep. But if you still you still love it though, so it's like maybe I'll take a break, and in that yeah. break I'll start applying to PhD programs for sure. So that's definitely what something I want to do because although I love bioarchaeology, I also do kind of work want to work in the contemporary. Mm-hmm. So my interests are really in political violence and U.S. border relations. So one of my huge manifestations for my entire life is really to be able to work at the U.S.-Mexico border and helping identify migrant skeletons. Mm-hmm. And so if I could somehow incorporate that into a PhD program, it's what I would love to do. Yeah. Have you looked at Texas State? They have a good program that they do a lot of border yes. stuff. Great. Awesome. I've been looking at Texas State. I've been looking into Arizona. And then I kind of have a a soft spot that I'm thinking about UCLA because I would love to work with uh, Dr. Jason De Leon. Yeah. That he's like a really cool, chill dude. I follow him on Twitter and he's just always talking about the Dodgers or his kids. It's, it's cute. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's exciting. I, you know, I, I wish everything that happens for you that you want, I think you're deserving of it. And um, yeah, I, I plan on taking time off after my master's um, and trying to get a job in the field, um, you know. I've recently mm-hmm. become really interested. Um, the podcast has really opened my eyes to public outreach and um, also making museums more accessible for people with disabilities. Uh, because um, I also just think in general, the layout and engagement of certain museums can really be improved. And that's not to say they're bad. But in my mind, when I go into a museum, I've kind of come into this space of like, I can see how I can make this better than it already is more accessible, more understandable to different levels, to different people, to different audiences. And um, I love bringing kids in. I think kids should learn about anthropology at a far younger age. So I I understand. And, you know, like you said, mental health is important. You know what else is important? Being able to make money so that we can live. So, you know, taking some time off to have a job at, you know, GTA ships, they they pay some of the bills, but, um, you know, it's important to be able to, um, to live and live, uh, comfortably. And as I'm learning, have money for car incidents. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I think that's definitely something I would like to do at least if, I do take like a year off and probably look into CRM work. Mm-hmm. Just California archaeology is pretty cool. And there's always, there's always something to do. So I feel yeah. like that's something I would look into. And then, and if not, I would also wouldn't mind being a professor at a community college because that's how mm-hmm. I kind of want to do outreach is that I went to community college and I can see how much of an impact you can make if you have an, a professor who cares. Yeah. Who pushes you and tells you, I did this. I did that. You can do it too. Mm-hmm. You can be a transfer student. It doesn't, t- it doesn't matter how long it takes you to do, to transfer, but you can do it. Yeah. I think that's a really great mentality that's needed in community college. It is. I, and I'm glad actually, I was going to ask about your experience at community college, I'm proud to on the podcast, you know, uh, to always be supportive and always um, really value Uh, both professors at the community college level and students at the community college level. I think it's, 
it got a bad rap for no reason and uh, maybe not the worst, but just, I think it's such a valuable time. What are some of the uh, key things you may, may advise a transfer student, someone who's looking to transfer? Is there anything that you would, you'd recommend or maybe just words of encouragement? Well, for community college students, I definitely just urge you to be careful and really be on top of looking at what courses you can use for transferring. Mm-hmm. Although, yes, you can take all the classes you want and, oh, this one sounds fun, I'll do it. But you got to think about the bigger picture and be like, if you're really trying to transfer, you have to see how it incorporates into what type of associate degree for transfer it could give you. Or even see if you can use that class for two different associate degrees for transfers. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes by taking all these different classes, say you get really interest to, interested in sociology, but also anthropology, you can get an AA in both. Mm-hmm. And I think that's definitely something that some community college students should take advantage of, is kind of looking across the board and seeing what kind of degrees can I get while I'm here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then again, talking with talking with the professors, getting to know them, go to their open office hours. Graduate student, go to open office hours. You never know what common interests they have and what doors they can open for you. For sure, for sure. I recently just like in contact with actually my one of my community college professors who invited me to do a dig here in California. Great. So it's, you never know what opportunities you can get by getting to know your professors. Mm-hmm. They can reach out to you in the future. They can, they can open new doors for you. You never know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very exciting. Uh, thank you for that. Those, I feel like that was a very thoughtful piece of advice that um, hopefully any, any uh, community college or, you know, transfer students can really take to heart. Um, I think the last thing that I kind of want to talk about is I know you went back to Mexico for a fun trip and I know you got to go see a lot of really cool uh, archaeological sites and museums. What were the highlights? What do you look back on most fondly? I don't know, coolest artifact you saw? Really anything. I'm I'm down to hear it all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I just went to Mexico City for a week. Um, I went to Teotihuacan. I went to Templo Mayor. I even got to go to the... Uh, Museo Nacional de Antropología for two days and wow. I was still not enough to see it all like mm-hmm. you're going through it that as much as I love the museum a lot of times I'm just like how do you have all this stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was I think my favorite artifact that I definitely got to see out of all of it at least in the museum of anthropology Guatlique, like she's just enormous she's freaking beautiful Mm -hmm. I was just amazed by the detail the stone craftsmanship it I loved it do you want to explain to our listeners a little bit about who that is yeah so Kwakwitle is the Aztec god the mother of fertility um she has a two heads of a serpent and has a, a braided snake skirt so she is like She's everything to the Aztecs. She created the stars. She gave birth to Huitzilipochtli, the the god of war. So she was a really high-regarded figure in the Mexican culture. Um, 
that actually the conquistadors used in their benefit to tra- to convert them to uh, Catholicism. Um, they changed Cuatlique's imagery to the Virgen de Guadalupe. Mm, interesting. I didn't so, know that. Being able to, yeah. So she, they would what they would do is because uh, she was found in Pueblo Mayor. Um, they would there's a church right next to Templo Mayor, which used the same stones from the, ar- mm. uh, the archaeological site to build the church. And what they did was they buried Cuatlicue at the bottom mm. so that so that people would go to church so that they would go to pray. But it would actually be to her and not the Virgin mm. de Guadalupe. So it was like this kind of weird interweaving of religions in order to get the Mexica people to start converting. Yeah, wow, that's really fascinating. I can't believe I didn't know that. Um, thank you it's for either, I, I may, I actually may be wrong. It could be the church next to Temple Mayor, or it could be the church where the the first sighting of the Virgin tapestry is stored right now. There's there's a lot of churches, so yeah, I get a little bit confused. But I think she was definitely either way. She's still like my favorite artifact to have seen in person. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, well, uh, I like to end the episodes just giving um, people an opportunity to touch on anything that we didn't get to, um, anything you'd like to add, any question you may have, uh, really anything, just kind of an opportunity to wrap up your thoughts. Hey, like final thoughts or something I would just like to encourage is if you're interested in anthropology, just do it. Mm-hmm. If you're just, there's all these different subdisciplines and interests and you're fascinated by them do them you can find so many ways in which they interweave if you're interested in cultural but you like archaeology there's a way you can do both for sure I just I think it just it's up to the individual to do the research sometimes but just talking to professors I think is a a huge key takeaway for me is just be like, hey, I'm interested in all these things. What do you know about them? Yeah. And I think that will definitely just kind of get the ball rolling for you to start looking into different research topics and seeing what kind of programs you can you can work on them with. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Um, I think that's definitely a great note to end on. Thank you so much for, for chatting with our listeners today. Um, it was a pleasure. 